Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. When people speak of gender fluidity, what is the understanding of the human body that is at play? When a researcher analyzes a dead body, are they seeing a still frame of what the body really is? How do we best conceive of, maybe even wonder about, the human body? And what does that mean for gender theories, feminist concerns, biological sex? To guide us in thinking about all these things and more, Dr. Angela Franks joins me for a discussion today, building off of one of her recent essays, which bears the title, The Body is a Formed Stream. That essay appeared in the Church Life Journal. Dr. Franks is professor of theology at St. John's Seminary in Boston and senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge. I'm excited about this conversation today because I think that what Dr. Franks both lays out and proposes can help all of us to think more clearly and in a richer way about the questions of embodiment, sex, and gender— that are so difficult to think through today. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Angela, you follow up on an observation by Abigail Favale that a major divide has occurred in modern feminism regarding who counts as a woman, really. Abigail described the camps as rad femmes and trans femmes. So generally speaking, rad femmes, when considering feminist concerns, do not include males who identify as women within those concerns, whereas trans femmes do include men who identify as women. Recognizing this quandary of modern feminism, you pick up the conversation by arguing that feminism made a fatal mistake by accepting the flawed premise of Margaret Sanger, who argued that women are repressed not by misogyny and social structures, but by their own fertile bodies. So I wanted to start here and ask you to tell us a little bit about how discontent with the female body, or maybe we could say embodiment in general, is a root cause of the present confusion in modern feminism. Yeah, thank you. That's that's it gets really at the heart of it because Sanger, in proposing this radical idea, introduced into feminism a unhappiness with the female body. And so then that is going to spill out in various ways. And so we see it, of course, in our contemporary world by the fact that so much of feminism has been hijacked by the radical abortion rights movement or an emphasis on contraception as being necessary for female liberation. So that idea, which is very close to Sanger's heart, of course, is that you have to make the female body infertile in order for women to be liberated. So again, making the problem the body. So if the body is the problem, then technology is the solution. But then you also see it, I think, now with what Abigail calls the trans femmes, where the body is really not even important anymore into what it counts, what counts as being female. 
And, you know, before basically the day before yesterday, it was understood that sexuality is a matter of the body. It's about whether or not one is formed either as a male or as a female and then how either the male or the female contributes to reproduction. And so if we we get rid of the body, then both radical abortion rights feminism makes sense as well as the trans feminism. And so it really gets to some of the incoherencies we see in feminism right now. Well, in your own genealogical work in tracing how this has developed, you bring us back to Judith Butler, for example, in your writing, who, as you point out, introduces a massive shift in feminist thinking when she refuses to accept that biological sex is stable or given. So to bring people a little bit up to speed, that's to say that not only does Butler agree with what feminist theory of her time pose, which is that gender is a social construct, right? But she also argues that sex is itself a construct, almost imaginary, but it's constructed. It's not given, to, to put it briefly. How do you see the ramifications of her proposal and, and Judith Butler's philosophical lineage playing out now? Yeah, there's lots of incoherencies here as well because Butler does not sound like, for example, a trans feminist who says, you know, male and female are these distinct realities. And all I know is that I want to be the other sex, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that in a sense, essentializes, as feminists used to say, it makes the two sexes very important and stable. And that's very contrary to what Butler is doing, in fact, who's making sex and the body itself very fluid. That being said, what Butler is influencing in the contemporary feeling about these things is the idea that I can name gender into being. I can perform gender into being. I can act it into being. It's not something, as you say, that's given that I receive first and foremost, but it is something that I perform or something that I do. And that is very close to what we see today. I mean, Butler's still alive. I don't want to make it sound like she lived 100 years ago, but but her, her thought lives today in this idea that if I want to be a male, I'll just do male things and I'll wear male clothes. And now all of a sudden I can be a male and maybe then I just have to change my body to make my body go along with it. And so we're witnessing this, the practical spelling out of Butler's gender theory. Can you just comment on something you mentioned in the midst there when you were talking about trans femme, you said it holds to a kind of essentialism with which Butler would not go along with. I think that might be important to kind of flesh out a little bit for folks who are listening. Explain that to us a little bit. Yeah, I would say in the maybe 1970s and 80s, feminists criticized a lot the idea of gender essentialism, Mm -hmm. which they interpret it using philosophical terms a little bit sloppily. They would say that, well, you can't make male and or female into essences, whatever they meant by that. But what they, they kind of meant by that was like it's almost like species or it's almost like these really important fixed and stable categories. And so feminist scholars were already arguing fairly early that there's a lot of social construction that goes into these categories. Now, the the whole essentialism debate, I think, is starting off on the wrong foot because it's not clearly defining its terms and it's just not using the philosophical language well. But at least the the basic insight is that, well, 
you have two alternatives. Either you can take male and female as being somewhat stable realities. Let's not call them essences, but something stable, or you can see them as fluid. And so Butler is definitely on the fluid side of things, whereas a lot of trans discourse, depending on who you're talking to, is very essentialist. You know, you look at you look at, you know, wearing nail polish and wearing high heels and like look doing things that I don't do as a woman, but it's kind of the stereotype of what it means to be hyper feminine. There's this this pure form of femininity that he's going after and will try to achieve. And and that's very essentialist, very rigid thinking, really. You know, like as long as I have long nails and nail polish, I'm a woman. You know, this is kind of a weird way of thinking about it. So there's there's definitely a strong element of trans thinking that is very essentialist. Okay. So you've brought into play here in, in this conversation distinctions between what's fixed and stable and what's changeable or fluid. So I think maybe that's that's a way to talk about something that you bring us into in your essay. You go on to point out that the body, as you say, has been liquidated in most contemporary gender theories. That liquidation is, I take it, sort of expressed in terms like gender fluidity, right? Because we're talking about the liquidation of the body. So therefore, gender fluidity seems to make sense in that thought world. Would you help us to understand what you mean then by the body being liquidated? Of course, we're talking in theory here, but what would it mean for the body to be liquidated? Yeah, we're talking in theory, but of course, then we there have ramifications. radical surgeries that follow on to the theory, right. and that's that's obviously where where the rubber meets the road. Up, so the theory, as we we've, we've already seen in Butler, argues that the body is so dependent upon the construction of power and language and the way people think that there's not a stable, reliable reality to it, and so it makes the bo- the body very plastic. Are very fluid. And so that that's another subset of the transgender movement that is less trans, say, and more into gender fluidity or non-binary gender. Yes. And so instead of saying, I was named a woman at birth, but I'm actually a man, so being very rigid, instead it's like, avoids all labels altogether. And it's like, well, today I woke up and I'm, um, I'm feeling like a woman, but tomorrow I might be a man this afternoon. I might be something else in between. So this fluidity of the body is very suspicious of any categories or anything that would seem to restrict my personal freedom to identify the way I want to. And so in this case, the body's really viewed as, as something that gets in the way because mm. um, it, it's way too stable. And so, you know, to subject it to surgeries or hormones or whatever to make it more androgynous, that's a positive good for this way of thinking. Would you go so far as to say that that line, the body is something that gets in the way, could be a sort of banner description of the way in which in much of our sort of modern consciousness, the body is being presented to us? Is that the new default? I think it is. It seems contradictory because, you know, we have people going to Pilates and spin classes and we seem to be very hyper aware of the body and very into wellness. But it's very easy for us to fall into this mindset that that my body is this thing that I have that I have to control and sculpt and and make ever fitter and ever better. And so I do think we we definitely view the body as this 
extrinsic hindrance hmm. to our personal self, which is this more maybe interior core or something like that. You'll find religious versions of this. I remember being at a parish and explaining to a woman who was older than me and who had been Catholic her whole life that we Catholics believe in the resurrection of the body. And she was like, I've never heard of that. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you've recited the rosary and you said it in the Apostles' Creed. But we just assume that can't be the case because yeah. we imbibe this kind of antibody ethos that's in the air. Yeah. Just as an aside on that, I was recently doing some research for a writing project I was I was working on. And if I remember these percentages correctly, according to these sociological studies, it was something well below a third of Americans believe in something like the resurrection of the body. I think it was well below that. And it was under 50% of Catholics, at least in these, you know, these surveys that were put out. So when I hear you say that, I'm not totally surprised because there's like a real life story behind this research that at least was being put forward. So friends, this is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm joined today by Dr. Andrew LaFranks, professor of theology at St. John's Seminary in Boston and senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge. We are discussing conceptions of the body in modern feminism and soon in medicine and the impact on theories of gender and womanhood. So, Angela, it would seem that a counter, perhaps, to that the liquidation of the body would be arguing that the body is therefore fixed, stable, definite, indisputable thisness, right? Something that functions or ceases to function. And you describe something like this and the tendency towards mechanization of the body in modern medicine. So I want to ask you a little bit about this. You point out that especially in the turn that created modern medicine, there was a real privileging of the dead body and the studying of dead bodies and animals and also human cadavers. And it leads to a view of the body as a machine that works or potentially works as and through various instruments. What does that kind of conception of the body do? Where does that bring us? Yeah, I want to be clear that that obviously things like dissection of cadavers and so forth, that people have learned a lot. Yes. But the question is, what's the big picture into which they fit that information? What's their their total view of the body? And what you see by you know people like William Harvey in the 17th century, who was a pioneer as far as the heart and the circulatory system, there was this tendency to say, well, the body really is a machine. I had written the article that, that we've been talking about. And so I had studied a little bit about Harvey. And, and one of the things that we get from his perspective is to call the heart a pump and the circulatory system basically like a plumbing mechanism. And I was thinking about these things and I opened the newspaper and there was a book review of a book called Pump. And it was indeed about the heart written by a doctor. <laughs> I was like, yep, there we go. Exactly. So this, this analogy that, that really our body is a machine. And so we'll, we'll view it like machines. We'll study it like we study machines and fix it like we fix machines. The problem, of course, is that we are alive. Machines have an on-off switch, but a body turned off is a dead body, which means it's not the body the way it, it's really a cadaver. It's, you know, Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas would say it's not even really a human body at all. It's a cadaver. It's something mm -hmm. different because it doesn't have that living soul in it. 
And so if we make the dead body normative, it's kind of like the autopsy takes a snapshot. Like where can we get a picture of the body where everything's still so we can take the snapshot? Well, that would be a dead body right, mm-hmm. where everything's still. And then the 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 mindset is, well, it's kind of, it's kind of like a flip book that my kids have. You know, we'll string together the snapshots and then we'll have a, a sense of what the body is like in motion. So obviously there's some, it's, it's something like what the body is like in motion, but it's forgetting exactly this element of life that really is what's holding the body together. And so to fly in the other direction away from fluidity and take refuge in a kind of extreme stability of the body where it's just a machine that has parts that you have to replace that also does not do justice to the full reality of the human body. Hmm. So I think the the trick is to find a place in the middle, which of course is always is always the trick, but is always a difficult thing. Yeah. That's going to bring us close to what you're proposing in the thesis of your essay and what you're helping develop. But I'd love to pause here a little bit and ask you to talk about, as you were saying, the heart has been conceived of as a pump and the circulatory system like plumbing, like the pipes, right? And the idea there is that the heart gets this fluid, this liquid moving and causes all the force that this stuff can just move through the pipes of the plumbing, the circulatory system. Can you share with us a little bit about how that conception falls apart under analysis? Yeah. So for this, I I rely on Stephen Talbot, who's a bioethicist, who's done a lot of writing on this. And he points out that when you look at the entire expanse of the circulatory system, so all the major veins and arteries and the capillaries, everything, right, that the tubing, quote unquote, like the, the sheer distance that this liquid has to travel is breathtakingly long. He talks, <laughs> he says it is taking, I think it's Route 80 from the East Coast to the West Coast and back again. The, the length that this fluid would have to travel, which is absolutely impossible for a little pump that weighs, you know, a pound or two. Like it doesn't have the, the force to be able to propel liquid. You would need an absolutely massive pump for that. And so it's not, in fact, the case that we have this pump and these tubings. It's much more complicated. We have this cyst, the entire circulatory system is really what moves the blood. The whole system contributes. You have these low pressure areas and you have liquid that's not only traveling through the vessels, but also leaking out, out of the vessels into the tissues and then also being reconstituted by the circulatory system. And so Talbot says, if the heart were a pump, not only would it have to send liquid this impossible length, but it would also have to irrigate. It would have to be a pump that also irrigates the entire Great Plains as as the liquid propelled through the tubes, which is really what's happening in our circulatory system. So it's a much more complex, subtle system that is really a matter of these flows and the balance between flows where everything all together is working. It has much more complicated purpose than just simply pushing liquid through a tube. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm joined today by Dr. Angela Franks, professor of theology at St. John's Seminary in Boston and senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge. We are following the contours of Professor Franks' essay on the body 
as a formed stream. So in looking here at the entire circulatory system, which isn't just the pump at the head and these pipes coming out from it, but seeing them all as one, and as you're talking about, it's a much more complicated process of circulation where everything is working together and it's not this clear, magically efficient system. That brings you, as, as you said, to starting to glimpse the body through the circulatory system as what you're talking about as a formed stream. So this really brings us to, I suppose, like the payoff. This is what you're proposing and helping to bring into our consciousness. What does it mean to speak, therefore, of the body as a formed stream? Because now we're speaking of those two seeming alternatives, something that's formed, the structure, and the fluidity, the liquidation, the thing that is streamed. You're bringing those together. What does this give to us? How do we begin to imagine this? Yeah, so Talbot argues, it's, it's Talbot's language to say formed stream, and he, he argues that this really does justice to the nature of the body as a living reality and not as a constructed machine. Mm. As a living reality, much of what's going on in our body has to do with fluidity. He talks about how the cells are are so porous and things are are much more porous than the the pictures in a textbook would would lead us to believe, which is just the snapshot, like right. the snapshot in the in the autopsy. And so, how do we do justice to this life? Because the the mechanistic analogy precisely fails at making sense of life, which is ironic, of course, because biology is, according to its name. In ology, a study of life. <laughs> so it's missing exactly the center if it can't have an account of life. And I think the reason it cannot have an account of life is because it um, so much of modern biology has been wedded to this mechanistic model that doesn't need an account of life. And along with that, a lot of modern science has rejected more classic philosophical terms and ideas as simply being unscientific, not provable, not demonstrable through experimentation and so forth. And so we'll just leave that stuff aside and focus on what it is we can see and, and experiment on. The problem with that is that life is not something you see and experiment on. You, you can't isolate life under a microscope in a Petri dish. You can isolate living things but life itself is not just simply something brutally tangible or, or visible. And yet it's something we see all the time because we see living things. So it's not as though life is mysterious, but the dismissal of life is really similar to how science dismissed a lot of traditional metaphysics by saying, oh, that's just invisible and mysterious and we can't see it. It was like, well, the same goes for life, in fact. <laughs> and in, in traditional metaphysics, there is a philosophical term for life. In the Aristotelian tradition, for living things, life is the form or the, the soul acts as a form. So formal causality, if you, know, if you know any Aristotle, that term is something that's very important for Aristotle, was explicitly rejected by, by modern science. But it really provides the key to having language to talk about life that doesn't reduce the living body to a mechanistic system, hmm. but also doesn't just abandon the body to the chaos of being purely flow and liquid. Because if we're really just only liquid, we're just going to dissipate. Like what's holding all the flow together? 
And so that's where Talbot says we're a formed stream. We're a structured flow. We're not just flow and we're not just structure, but we're both together. And so formally helps us hold the center there of that idea. I think I read from you that, and following on what you're saying here, that you can't see life, but you can see and encounter living things. And so the living things mediate life. These are the mediations. And so it sounds to me like if we'll put this in different terms, it comes a little bit closer probably to sacramental language. But nevertheless, when we're talking about the soul as form and the body as that which mediates life, the mediation, that which mediates, actually has its importance, its significance in presenting the living thing. Like this is what life looks like. There's no other way to see life for us at least, than to encounter those who are living, living things. Is this sounding right? I don't know. I'm trying to scratch yeah. around the surface of this. That's great. And I do talk about that in this essay. And I also talk about it other places where I think it's really important. I get this from John Paul too, that yeah. the centrality of the body for us is that it expresses the person. Mm. And so part of that is like that it's expressing a living person, right? So what the body does is mediate. And it always mediates. It's just constantly mediating. Hmm. It can't not. That's really its job. So, you know, maybe not its job biologically, if you're going to just, you know, reduce us to biology, but it's its job anthropologically for the whole person. What the body does is to reveal the person and mediates. And so, yeah, we're constantly encountering life. Like nobody would deny life just because you can't isolate it in a Petri dish, we're constantly encountering it because we encounter other living beings, including other people. So we got onto this discussion from the beginning talking about conceptions in gender theory and especially in modern feminism and who counts as a woman and who gets counted under feminist concerns. As we now get to the point of starting to state this proposal, this reconception of the body as a form stream, which forces us to transcend what appears to be the only two options, the stable structure or the liquid body, we're transcending those. What is the upshot for all of this for feminism today or for the understanding of our bodies or questions related to biological sex or gender? Where does this leave us? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's always helpful when we're dealing with ideas that are wrong and dangerous, like I think a lot of contemporary gender theory is, I think it's always helpful to say, why is it appealing to people? And when you ask why it's appealing, you're really asking, what is the good that people are seeking when they embrace this way of thinking and acting? And so my conviction is that the good that people are embracing is that they realize that there's something true about fluidity. They might not know the biology, but Mm -hmm. it's true that we are not just meant to stand still. And so one way of thinking about this is how Christianity brings is a picture of the human being who is called, which means the human being is on the move. It's supposed to be moving toward union with God. And so we're not called to, you know, it's not a, a kind of rigid caste system where we're just put in our place in the universe and, you know, that's where we're going to stay. Like Christianity is reveals to us that God created us to be on the move, but on the move toward him. 
So it, it's a movement that has a form and an order. And so I think people who embrace gender theory have this vague intimation that it feels good to move. Like they just, they know that there's something good about that. What they haven't grasped is where really are we supposed to be moving? How are we supposed to be moving? And how does the body fit into that? And so we have a tendency to take that desire for movement and do what I call turning it 90 degrees. And just like, instead of us being oriented toward God and towards transcendence, we make all of that movement have to happen here in the world. Mm. And, you know, the world can't support that kind of pressure. You know, the world can't give us everything that we long for because we're ultimately made for something that transcends the world. And so we do that to our bodies a lot. We're like, well, if I'm discontent, I'm going to find a bodily solution because it seems easier. Honestly, like if really the solution to spiritual problems is to take hormones, like that's pretty easy, except it's false, right? Because if it's a spiritual problem, it has to do with something beyond the body, but we tend to stop at the body and really scapegoat it make it, you know, the, the problem. And so instead of that, I think what we're called to do is to help people see that their desire for flow and liquidity has to be understood in this larger transcendent vision. Mm. You know, as I was on this very point, as I was reading your essay, and I think you were talking about the process, really the mystery of fertilization, which seems like competition, but really it's a dialogue between the egg and the sperm and actually all of the sperm together in in a dialogue. And I won't go further than that because I will very quickly go outside of my very small area of expertise. But I was thinking there and in terms of what you're talking about here about what seems to many cynics as the most primitive story of all, which we come across, let's say, in Genesis 1, where God speaks, the word is given, and that which has been unformed responds to that word by receiving what's given and being formed. I found myself like just very quickly sort of like imagining almost in my mind what you were talking about in terms of fertilization or in terms here about the Christian as being called and therefore created to move in terms of what we hear in Genesis 1, like the responsiveness to that word brings about form and takes us out of chaos, but it's toward an end. So I want to kind of bring that up as a sort of like note of appreciation of something that sort of connected for me or and I'm hearing again here from what you were writing and now what you're saying. Yeah, that's beautiful because God created many different creatures, but he created us human beings as creatures who have this space of freedom to respond. Yes. It's this space of responsiveness. And so he created us as formed as having a particular body. And so all of these things that were given that are really gifts, but can feel like oppression because Inside it, you know, we, we were just given it. All of those are gifts that are meant to be used in that freedom of responsiveness in, in receiving the gift and then uniting our freedom to what he's given us as far as our, our mission and our identity and our purpose. And so it's like this, this move towards meaningfulness instead mm. of chaos and meaninglessness. I love that, this move toward meaningfulness. I like that a lot. Well, Angela, you've given us quite a lot here in our conversation. For friends, if you'd like to follow up on this essay, you can find it in the Church Life Journal. 
The title of the essay is The Body as a Form Stream. You can find other essays from Angela Franks also in the Church Life Journal and elsewhere, including on her own website. But for now, Angela, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Thank you. This is great. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.